If you want to open your Bibles, we're going to finish up a section that we started uh, some time ago, chronologically. We started in October, but because of various things, we haven't gotten back to it. And we're finishing up the section today, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 through 11. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 through 11. And I'm going to read this section, but as I did last week, I'm actually going to go back to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, and come forward. So just follow along as I read, as as it will prepare us for finishing this material. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. All of this is designed to encourage us. Every time I teach, when I'm teaching a section of scripture, if you were to look at my notes, I always have a a reference. Because as I think through the text, and I'm looking at the block of text, I'm always trying to come up with one question. Why is this in the Bible? Why did God put it here? Why is this here? What is the point of this text? And ultimately, in this context, God is encouraging us To embrace his loving discipline. God understands that as his children, we recoil from discipline. We can run from it. And the point of this text is to encourage us that we can endure whatever comes our way. Whatever form the Lord's discipline takes, we can survive. And as I indicated, and I, again, I can't go where we're going without giving a brief review of where we've been, but I gave a longer review last week, so I'm not going to go into as much detail. But as we look in this section, the word discipline occurs over and over and over again. It's talking about God's discipline with a brief analogy to a father disciplining his own child, an earthly father. And when we deal with discipline here, as I indicated, and I've indicated it more than once, this isn't just punishment. The word that's used for discipline here goes beyond the idea just of punishing someone, although that can be included. 
It has the idea of training someone. Certainly, if you're a parent, you're punishing your children. You shouldn't be doing it out of anger. You're doing it to correct them, to train them. But the idea here goes beyond just punishment if you sin. It goes to the corrective influences of God in every aspect of our life. I think it's more expansive than punishment. Again, it includes it. But it has the idea that God is trying to conform us to a certain pattern of living. I sort of came up with a definition that I think encompasses fully what's being taught in the text. Discipline is any method God uses to train us to live holy lives. Sometimes and often it is a direct consequence of sin in our lives. We sin and God has to tear us away from that sin, sometimes painfully. But it goes beyond that. I think there are some times where God is disciplining us, he's training us, he's teaching us, even if it's not a direct result of our personal sin. Sometimes it can be the circumstances of life that are challenging, the things that come against you from a sin-filled world But in all of this, God is trying to teach us that it's okay to endure his discipline. In fact, we should embrace it. We should understand what God is doing in this process. So that led me to break down these verses into a five-part message. It was just five thoughts about the discipline of God. We've covered the first four, but I'm just going to read them to you. The first one was that discipline must be kept in perspective. And this really is tied up in verse 4, that you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. The idea there is not your personal sin. Striving against sin, sin being a, a personification of the entire evil world system around us. And it comes right off of what we saw in verse 3 about Jesus Christ. We're supposed to consider Jesus who endured hostility by sinners so that we don't grow weary, so that we don't lose heart. That's why I say all of this is designed to encourage us because it's building off of that point. God doesn't want us to get so weary that we stop, that we give up. And yet every one of us has had times like that where we're tired and we wonder, Lord, can I handle one more thing from you? What is going on? And the whole point here of verse 4 is just to say, look, whatever you're going through, somebody's gone through something worse. That's an oversimplification of the teaching, but that really is what it boils down to. In this case, he he knew they had endured real hardship. Some of them had been imprisoned. Some of them had been uh, caught visiting prisoners. Some of them had lost all of their financial resources, and yet he was basically telling them, look, understand other people have had it worse. They haven't killed you yet. There's a whole laundry list in in chapter 11 of people who were sawn in two and run through with swords. Even Christ's own example, a bloody, vile, vicious death of crucifixion. And he's basically telling them, look, I realize your circumstances are tough. But they're not as bad as you think they are. They're bad. He wasn't minimizing it. They really had endured But the idea was they needed to keep it in perspective because if they were not careful, they would begin to think, woe is me, and it would all become about me, and I can't handle any more. And the reality is saying, look, look around. Other people have endured worse. I don't think he's mocking them. I don't think he's slapping them across the head. I think he's just reminding them, look, keep things in perspective. The second point was that discipline is an expression of love. That was verses 5 and 6. Discipline is an expression of love. And no doubt some were wondering, wait a minute. 
I thought I was God's child. I thought he saved me. Now why would he treat me this way? I think some were even wondering, wait a minute. Does this mean I'm outside the will of God? I am getting pummeled here from various circumstances. My life hurts right now. This must mean God is angry with me. And the reality is they had forgotten what the scriptures say. And he's pointing them to a particular proverb in verses 5 and 6. But he's basically saying, look, you forget. Actually, God disciplines those he loves. Specifically, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Again, that's supposed to be an encouragement. If you're feeling God's discipline in your life, either for your own sin or for other circumstances, and you see that God's working through difficult circumstances to train you, the writer of Hebrews is saying you ought to take comfort in that. He says these scriptures were written to you as an exhortation, and that word exhortation goes beyond just a rah-rah. It has the idea of comfort and encouragement. These scriptures were written and he puts them here. He's reminding them of it. They're supposed to be encouraged by that. Discipline isn't an indication that God is disgusted with you and he's going to throw you away. It's it's an indication that God still cares you enough and he still loves you that he's not done working in your life. That led to the third point. Discipline is evidence of salvation. Discipline is evidence of salvation. Verses 7 and 8 read this, but it, tying up again, I, I did a longer review last week. Verse 8 says, But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. I mean, he, he's telling them they have to endure. That's an imperative command. You don't have a choice. You have to endure. You don't get to quit. You don't get to stop. That's not an option. It's one thing about Christianity, and that's one of the reasons why all these warnings in the book of Hebrews, we are God's children. It doesn't end. That's it. We don't have a choice. We don't have the option of stopping. We've got to keep going, and he's basically saying, look, if you're going through life and you don't see any evidence of God's discipline, that shouldn't cause you to be happy. It should cause you to be scared to death because you're not a legitimate child. You're illegitimate. That's unequivocal. I've thought a lot about the years of my life where I thought I was a Christian, but I lived a completely pagan lifestyle. I I mean, it it was horrible. It's the kind of thing the Bible says there's things too shameful to talk about. And as I look back and I evaluate, was I really saved, was I not saved, one of the evidences to me that I wasn't truly saved was there was no evidence of God's discipline. I was left alone. I was plowing ahead. Thank the Lord that he did save me. Thank the Lord that ultimately I'm disciplined now. But if you don't ever see any evidence of paying a consequence for your sins, be nervous. If you don't ever see any evidence of God working in your life, of doing things to grow you into holiness, you ought to be concerned. Because that idea of holiness is our fourth point. Submitting to discipline leads to holiness. Submitting to discipline leads to holiness. This was our teaching last week. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? 
For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. Again, he's painting a simple picture by way of analogy that fit within the context of the time. We live in a time where fatherly discipline is, is often overlooked. He's not making a commentary on the proper role of a father. He's assuming that people understand a father who cares for his child will discipline his child. And a child who sees their father trying to keep them out of trouble, trying to set them on the right path, it should engender respect. And he's saying, his argument is, if that's the normal relationship in a human father Son, father, child relationship that the father disciplines out of concern and the child at some point recognizes it and is appreciative, should we not embrace God's discipline and say thank you? Shouldn't we be subjected to it? Shouldn't we want God's corrective discipline, God's loving training, His care for our life, His pointing us away from danger? And He makes it clear. Earthly fathers sometimes are doing their best, but they don't know everything. They disciplined us as it seemed best to them. You try your best, but sometimes you blow it. Think of the number of times with my girls where I thought I was on the right path, and then I realized I'm an idiot, and I had to go back and apologize to them. Rachel can still remember when she was a little girl, we spent eight hours about a loose tooth. That was not a highlight for my fatherly love. I still feel bad about it. It was horrible. And it's like, what kind of idiot am I? I thought I was doing the right thing, though. I didn't start out saying, you know what? Rachel's really cute. I really want to mess up her day. (laughs) Let me terrorize her. No, I thought I was doing good. I was just wasn't. That doesn't happen with God. He doesn't make mistakes like that. He doesn't mess up. God's never going to come back to you and say, you know what? I'm sorry. I I didn't realize what I was doing. I thought I was helping you become more like Christ. Sorry. Praise the Lord that we don't have a God like that. He doesn't have to apologize because he always does the right thing the first time. He disciplines us always for our good. You can't ever have God's discipline in your life and say it was vindictive by God or anything else. It's for our good. He wants us to get to a certain point. He wants us to share his holiness. Sometimes there's teaching of the Old Testament that is teaching of the Old Testament. A lot of the sacrificial things and and making up certain types of offerings, you read it and you kind of numb over. Sometimes, though, there are things that are directly applicable. In Leviticus, be holy as I am holy. That's God's statement. That's repeated by the Apostle Peter. Be holy as I am holy. This is what God's discipline is doing. It's making us holy like he is holy. We should be encouraged by that, knowing that it's not just vindictive punishment, vindictive jumping through hoops. It's all purposeful, designed to lead us to holiness. This brings us to our last point. Now we're finally to the new material today. The fifth and final thought about the discipline of God is this. Discipline, while painful, brings great reward. Discipline while painful, brings great reward. And this all comes from verse 11, which wraps up this section. The writer of Hebrews says this, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. 
Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. From the earliest days of my salvation, I've been enamored with the Word of God. Obviously, that's why I'm a pastor, because of the Word of God. Initially, what amazed me was I had been around the Bible my whole life. I'd even read through the Bible start to finish before. And yet, as I was sitting listening to Bible teaching, I was like, I can't believe that's in the Bible. I didn't know that was there. I didn't know that was there. And over and over, you see these things, and I was like, wow, I didn't realize that was in the Bible. It's the difference between reading the Bible with fleshly eyes and spirit-opened eyes. Suddenly it comes alive and you go, oh, this is what was there. But early on, I was also struck by the honesty of God's Word. Because you see people, warts and all. You see things as they really are. Just as an illustration, somebody like King David, who's a hero... If the Bible was a man-made book, I'd expect that we would never hear anything bad about David, and yet the Bible records what he did with Bathsheba. Probably the most shocking and unbelievable sin by a godly man you could imagine. Adultery followed by murder, followed by a hardened heart for probably at least nine months. No repentance. Torment, Psalm 32, but no true repentance it was only after he was confronted by Nathan that he repented. And that honesty of God's word in a different context, I think, is reflected by verse 11. It acknowledges that sometimes life hurts. I think in many respects, the Christian life is not as complicated as many people want to make it. We don't know everything. Sometimes there are challenges. But the reality is what God wants you to do isn't as complicated as we make it. I think a lot of times we can try and spiritualize and overanalyze things to avoid doing the obvious, simple, obedient step. But even when you are following God's will, you've figured out what God wants you to do and you're taking steps in obedience, life can still beat you up. It still can hurt. You can have pain. You can have misery. You can have suffering. And pain and misery and suffering can all fit and describe at times God's discipline of his children. And the scriptures don't pretend otherwise. When God is disciplining us, as verse 11 says, it might not seem like a fun thing. We might not be jumping up, cheering, saying, bring it on, God. Give me a little bit more. It can really hurt. That suffering is real. Maybe a physical affliction. Certainly that's reflected in the Bible. And when your body breaks down and it hurts, it can be relentless, or it may be family strife of some sort, persecution within your family, rebellion of children, it might be work-related circumstances that God's using to try and change you, it might be unfair accusations like our sister Beth is enduring in Bolivia. 
God sovereignly allows or causes all kinds of circumstances like this, and the Bible honestly acknowledges you probably aren't going to jump up and down and do cartwheels when you're in the midst of it because it doesn't seem like fun. It hurts. Now, I think occasionally in a moment of clarity, when God is working in our hearts, we might even in the midst of the pain say thank you because we recognize what God is doing. James says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. The idea is not contradictory of what we're studying today. That's that hard attitude that can transcend your circumstances, but it doesn't deny that the pain is real. So when the author says that discipline seems sorrowful, he's being honest about what life is really like. And this may make no sense to some of you, but I want to, as I think through my life, I think through others, let me take some of the pressure off of you. You don't have to feel bad if in the midst of God's discipline you say, ow, in your heart. You don't have to feel bad just because you're in pain. Because it can hurt. But this is where God comes alongside you and immediately, even though he acknowledges that it's painful, says, but don't sit down and stop. You can't focus only on the hurt. That's what's hard for us, is in the midst of our circumstances, we feel like we're in a box and people are just raining on top of us and we've got nowhere to run. It feels that way. That's not how it really is. You've got to exercise self-control over your mind to see the big picture, which is that God is using these circumstances to make you holy, to make you like Christ. That's sort of implicit at the back end of verse 11. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it. The idea here is that you can learn the lessons God is trying to teach you. Even in the midst of the pain, the challenge for you, the exhortation to you from Scripture is not to wallow just in the pain, but to say, okay, Lord, I'm hurting. What are you trying to teach me? What can I learn? God, I need your help to take another step because I don't have any energy, I don't have any hope, but I know you're going to sustain me. What am I learning? The idea is that we shouldn't be fighting against it, running away from it. We should be embracing it and trying to figure out, Lord, what work are you doing in me right now? Help me to see it and help me to learn it. Again, even in the midst of those hurts, we can understand sovereign joy, considered all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, ultimately knowing that they produce in you mature Christian character. These verses are complementary, really. But even if you can have that right attitude in the heart, it doesn't take away the reality of the pain. Ultimately, as we embrace it, we're embracing and understand that there is a finish line for this. Afterwards, it, meaning the discipline, meaning if you can learn from what God is doing in your life, the lessons he's trying to teach you, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. This is great hope. This is consistent with James where it talks about you'll be perfect and complete. The idea being that you'll be a mature Christian. 
I promise you, if I asked you to write on a paper like a little kid and I had a box, do you want to be a mature Christian? And I put a little box yes and a little box no. Everybody in the right mind is checking the yes box. That's what we want. God is showing you this is how you get it. So in the midst of the hurt, recognize God is using that to pay dividends down the road. Kind of like the, it's an agricultural analogy, but you know, you plant seed, you don't eat today. You just planted the seed. It takes a while, and eventually there's a harvest. Same way it can be with God's discipline. It doesn't always start and end in one day. But the promise of God is that the end result is that we will be holy and we'll experience the peace and joy that comes from being in God's will. Over and over I go back to the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit is love. I don't know, I don't, I don't have as much scripture memorized as I should, but I memorize this. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. How many of us want that type of life? All of us. Because every day when we don't have that, we're reminded of all the things inside of us and outside of us that rob us of our love and our joy and our peace and our patience and our kindness and our goodness and our faithfulness and our gentleness and our self-control. God's discipline is working not just to make us hurt, but it's ultimately working to make us holy. That's where we find true peace. That's where we find true joy. But I don't know anything harder than waiting for God to do what he's doing. I've shared different parts of my life, and I'm only 48, but I'm already like somebody that just repeats himself, so I don't remember what I've told to who. So if you've heard all this, just smile at me and go, oh, okay. That was enlightening. Um, my kids smile a lot because they hear a lot of the same things. But one of the hardest periods of my life was the three years prior to becoming a pastor at Lakeside. Because I finished seminary in May of 2007 and I graduated and it was a great, excuse me, 2004, I'm sorry. May of 2004, I graduated from seminary. It was an accomplishment. I was leaving a legal career, and I don't want to say this the wrong way, but God gave me the skills to be a good lawyer and I had a good life. And yet I counted the cost and I was willing to walk away from it because I thought God called me beyond that to teach God's word and to shepherd his people. So I'd already moved away from a very good job to working part-time as a lawyer. My family endured four years of seminary, but we had a goal. It was to serve the Lord. And so I graduated in May of 2004 and I was pretty excited I couldn't wait. I had learned so much in the last four years. I went through seminary in four years because of having to work. I had learned more than I could ever imagine. The Word of God, I understood it better than I ever had. And I could not wait to get started. I was, now, let me be honest. And I'll, This is not a commendable thought, but it's like, well, I know the Lord needs me. I can look around and see all the bad churches. People not... I'm right here. I'm ready to go. 
and the first six months passed, and I candidated at a church, and nothing happened, and I didn't have a job. And I was like, huh, well, that's weird. Then the next six months passed, and I started talking to another church, and things were looking good, and then that took almost a year, and hmm, no, that didn't work out. Hmm. For a year and a half, I'm like a a ball player. I'm standing on the sidelines. I'm watching the game going on, and I'm like, Lord, here I am. Send me. Got a clean uniform, got good cleats. I'm ready to go. Give me the ball. And by this time, I had lost the joy of doing the legal work because that's not where my heart was, and yet I didn't have a choice. I had to pay the bills. I even have an unbelieving friend. He's one of my best friends in the world. We talk during the week. We talk almost every day. I remember around the year and a half point, he's like, at what point do you pull the plug on this and just go back to being a lawyer? You kind of seem to me not doing anything. Now, was I doing ministry? I was leading a Bible study weekly at my house. I was preaching every other week, uh, two Sundays out of a month. I was preaching at a church up in Fresno. I was driving seven hours round trip to preach for an hour. But I knew there was something more candidated at another church nope that didn't happen candidated at another church nope that didn't happen so now you're in December of 2006 and I'm pulling my hair out come on Lord I'm ready to go yet I never did give up what I thought in my mind, it was a hard time for me. I don't mean to say I was victorious in my thinking. That was one of the darkest times in my life. But I never went back to working full-time as a lawyer. I knew the moment I did, I would be entangled in cases and it would be tied up for 18 months or two years. I had to trust that somewhere in there the Lord was working. And then finally in January of 2007, a friend called me and told me that Phil Johnson knew this guy in Florida. And within a couple of weeks, Steve and I were talking. And within a couple of weeks, I was here walking around this building. And then finally, July 1, I started here in 2007, but it was over three years I can look back on it now and say, you know what? I was enduring a certain level of pain and heartache and the torment of my mind as I could not stop thinking about what I wanted to be doing and what I wasn't doing. There was fruit at the end. God ultimately did what he wanted to do. Praise the Lord that I've been here now going on eight years. I couldn't have imagined a better place. I couldn't imagine any of it, and yet God knew that none of this was available until it was available. And so he kept me on the sidelines. He kept me busy, but it was a battle. Some of you may be going through, in a different context, battles that have been that long. Maybe you're only a year into something going, is it going to stop? Maybe you're eight years or ten years or fifteen years into something. The point is, if you were God's child, God hasn't forgotten you. 
He's working out even this painful, slow process to bring about the exact result he desires in your life. I learned a lot of things in that time. I learned, first of all, I can't rush God. He's God, I'm not God. Number two, I learned that I have to rely on his promises even when I don't see them fulfilled. I don't have a choice. There is no other option. I don't take for granted that I have a job here at Lakeside. I am very, very thankful. I don't always like everything I'm doing. Dealing with people's sin is the hardest thing I ever have done. But I wouldn't trade it for anything. I think God in that three-year period was disciplining me. It may have been for my own pride, thinking that I was necessary to his work. You know, the A-team's here, God, let's go. And it's like, <laughs> I don't need the A-team. You're probably about the Z-team. <laughs> and I may use you, but my work continues whether you're here or not. I still struggle with pride, but it taught me a lot about humility. I pray that you can endure what you're going through. That you can see God's discipline for what it is. It's his perfect loving will for your life to transform you into what he wants you to be. It may not match up with what you want or what you've planned or what you're thinking But I can encourage you, from God's word, he's going to finish what he started. Join me as I close this time in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us. A love that is so great that you choose to discipline us to bring about holiness in our lives. Lord, we don't like discipline. We don't like the pain. I know countless times we would be like the Apostle Paul and pray, Lord, take away this thorn in the flesh. Take away this circumstance. Praying over and over, Lord, just take it away. Change it. And yet, Lord, we may already be hearing what you told the Apostle Paul. That your strength is shown in our weakness. That sometimes you're not going to take away what's challenging and what's a trial. Sometimes you're going to allow us to endure because you want to bring about a better result. So I pray, Lord, that even as we are hurting, we can see your will. Even as we're hurting, we can see your loving hand in our lives. Lord, even as we would choose anything but what we're going through, I pray that we can see that it's perfect in your sight for what you want us to be. And Lord, as we are here at the Christmas season, we thank you for Christ because all of our discussion would be pointless apart from Christ. As sinners, Lord, we would just be groping about in the dark, flailing about, unconcerned with you and what you want. Lord, thank you for bringing us into the light. I pray that as we Continue today, we will be thankful and grateful 
for all that you have done and that you are doing, even when you discipline us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.